from speaking at a summer camp with a bunch of high school students. And so often when I say good morning, one, there's no response because they're dead tired. And then often the urge is to ask them how their week is going. And I almost asked you guys, how's your week? How's camp? But I suppose that wouldn't be as appropriate. So you can tell me after. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I just want to take a minute and introduce myself. My name is Inza Fleetstra. If you um, recently went through the, the list of different ministries that we're looking for volunteers for, and you saw over top of the youth ministry, this kind of strange foreign-looking name, that's me. Um, it was almost spelt right, too. Sorry, there's a T missing. But uh, that's who I am. Uh, we've been attending here now just about a year and just recently moved here from Sudbury, where I was pastoring for about nine years before that. And now we're here as my wife pursues a career in midwifery. So it's been awesome growing in this church and getting to know many of you. It's been awesome uh, learning from Brad and from the elders. And I'm just excited now that I get to be, have my opportunity to share from God's word. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for this day that we have to come together to study your word, to praise you, to glorify you, Lord. God, and I pray that as we now endeavor through your word that you would speak clearly through me, God, as this is your word, not mine, and that we would be encouraged and challenged, Lord, and as we leave this place, we would be bold in our faith. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. So while I was at camp, I was thinking about what am I going to preach on? I asked Brad, was there anything that you wanted me to speak on, really in hopes that he would say, take this, preach on this, because it's, honestly, if you've never taken the time to preach before, one of the hardest parts is figuring out what are you going to do, and especially a one-off, just kind of random Sunday service where you don't have a series, you're like, oh, what do I preach on? And so we were going through, with the, junior, or with the youth at the camp, we were going through some um, biblical biographies, and I was trying to focus on people that maybe we don't talk about, haven't heard about enough, and I did Rahab, and as I spent time in Rahab, I just grew to really appreciate the story. What we're talking about today is very different than what I talked with the high school kids about, um, but I was super encouraged by Rahab and her faith. I was really encouraged by Rahab and her boldness. And so this morning I've titled the message, Stand Firm. Now, I had planned to read all of chapter two, so we'll be in Joshua chapter two, looking at the story, you can turn there. I planned to do my best to uh, preach like Pastor Brad and read the whole chapter, but I just don't have that kind of stamina when it comes to reading. So I'm going to start in verse 8. Before I do, the quick backstory: The Israelite people have now come to the land of Canaan, and they are getting ready to strategically move through and conquer the land. And so Joshua is talking to his men, and he's talking to two spies, and he says, it's time for you to go out and I want you to spy on the land of Canaan, but specifically I want you to go and spy on Jericho. Go and let me know about Jericho. And so, of course, they go to Jericho, but very quickly they're found out, and so they take refuge with this woman named Rahab, who, when is um, challenged by the king, if she's seen these men, lies about it and says, no, I, I don't know where these men were. They were here, but they've since left. If you go quickly, if you hurry up, you could probably catch them. I think they left the city. And so she sends the king's men um, on their way out of the city looking for these two spies. And then we, starting in verse 8, we get, so Rahab has now sent the, the men looking for the spies away. Meanwhile, she's hidden the men on her roof. Now she goes up to them and has this conversation. So Joshua, 
Chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I'll be reading from the ESV. It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our land, sorry, deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell the business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window from her house was built into the city wall, so that she, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so it be. Then she went away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Not too many people, not too many philosophers anyways, spend time dwelling on the concept of foundations. You won't go into too many libraries or great halls and see men sitting around in big, comfortable chairs, perhaps with their pipe, just contemplating foundations. Likely, neither have you spent much time thinking about foundations, unless, of course, like so many in northern Ontario, after the great snow melts, you find an inch to maybe six inches of water in your basement, then of course you will spend a lot of time thinking about your foundation and trying to figure out what's wrong with it. But likewise, for the most part, we don't spend much thought about our basement. It's there, we store stuff in it, it holds the house up, it does its job. We don't often think about our foundation unless something's going wrong, unless our roof is falling in, unless our walls are falling down, unless there's water in the basement. The foundation that our house built on goes unnoticed. Likewise, in the ways of math, not too many people considered the foundation of 2 plus 2 when they were sending men to the moon. The foundation of 2 plus 2 was there, but no NASA scientist came and said, let me make sure that you have a rudimentary understanding of grade 2 math. That was taken for granted, that if you are able to do these complex mathematical equations, you understand the the beginning foundations of math. In the same way, you would never just randomly throw 
advanced calculus at a grade three and expect them to be able to understand it because the foundations of math are not yet there. The foundations, even though we spend little time thinking about them, are super important. Without a proper or good foundation, mankind would have never reached space. We wouldn't have got off the ground. Our buildings would never have made it beyond two stories tall. So I once worked for a company, and part of my job, I once worked for a construction company, and part of my job was that of building the foundations, of creating it. And so my job, I would show up usually on site, bare lot, nothing was there, and I would work with the excavator, and we would dig out the hole. Then I would work with, we used a company called TerraProbe, or sometimes we would use Tulloch Engineering to make sure that the ground was good, and then they would tell us what other fill we had to put into the ground before we could even build our foundation, because the ground had to be good, had to have a good foundation before we could even build the foundation of the house, right? Complicated. Then once we figured out what kind of fill we needed, usually in Sudbury we would use slag. If you've ever driven through Sudbury, you've seen the mountains of slag everywhere, that black, awful rock. And we would lay the slag and we would pack it and then we would pour our footings. And then after that dried, we would put up our walls. And then we still weren't done because then we would have to go around and tar the inside and the outside of the whole building to make sure that it was leak proof and then we would put the weeping tile down and then we'd fill in with rock for proper drainage and do all the steps. And so building a proper foundation is no small task. It is no small task and it is not insignificant. In fact, it is of the utmost importance. And if you build your foundation properly and take the time and do it right, you will have a sturdy place where you can begin to build your life. Likewise, in all the joy and fear and hope and pain of our lives that we deal with on a day to day, if we don't have a proper foundation rooted in God, we are in trouble. God should be our firm foundation for all of our faith lives. And this morning, I want to take a closer look at this faith that Rahab had and her decision to set God as her foundation. So back to Joshua 2. We're going to take out a couple of lessons from Rahab. First of all, what we need to understand is that from a civic standpoint, what Rahab did was treason. We need to accept that. It was her duty to report the spies to the king's men who came to her. That's a fair assumption. Rahab was treasonous in her actions. Rahab fairly quickly, it seems, had knowledge, though, of who these guys were. And more importantly, she had knowledge of who their God was. It is fair to assume that Jericho would have had plenty of foreign people traveling through, and Rahab, given her occupation and given the location of where she lived, would have met plenty of these travelers. But for whatever reason, we're not sure what, Rahab knew who these men were. She knew that they were Israelites. And much more importantly, She knew who their God was. This is what we read. She tells them, she says, God has given you this land. Then she goes on to speak of their history, going back at least 40 years to the exodus of exile, to the conquering of the Amorite kings. Right, so she doesn't just know a little bit about this camp of of people who are outside. She hasn't just heard a little bit. The history of these people going back over 40 years is something that Rahab is very confident and comfortable with and has a firm grasp on. 
Moreover, she goes on to say that she knows that God is the God of heaven and of earth. She's declaring that God is the one true God above all other gods. And the last thing that Rahab knows is that God could save her. Now, Rahab likely wasn't over 40. She was likely 20 at the oldest, probably younger than that. We're not totally sure. We get that speculation from the fact that when it mentions her family, it mentions her father's house, mentions her mother and her brothers. There's no mention of husbands or children. Potentially in her line of work, she might not have been married, but certainly there's a high probability that she could have had kids. But she has no kids. She has no husband. She has um, father and mother. So she's fairly young. So she's not old enough to know going back 40 years what the Israelite people did. She has no firsthand account, which means that this lesson of who the Israelite people are and who God is is something that has been taught to the Canaanite people for some time. It's part of their world history that they're teaching their kids in their school system, whatever that looked like in Canaan, I'm not sure. But for Rahab, that knowledge led to action. So she knew that God had given the land to, her pe- to, to the Israelite people. <clears throat> she knew of their history. She knew that God was the one true God above heaven and earth. She knew that God could save her. And that knowledge of God led to action. And it actually led to action for everyone in the city. But for Rahab, it was very different from the rest. Rahab tells the spies here in chapter 2, she says that, excuse me, Rahab tells the spies that the knowledge of the Israelites and God, coupled with the reality that they have come now to the doorstep of Canaan, has caused all of the people in her city to melt with fear. So they've known about this God for some time. They've known about this God possibly as far back as 40 years. They've known about the history of these people and what God has done with them and for them and through them. And now they're seeing the Israelite people marching on their doorstep. They're just across the Jordan. They're just around the corner. They're ready to come into Canaan and conquer the land. These people know who God is. They know what he's capable of. And their response is fear and trembling. It says, her people melted away with fear. Rahab's actions, on the other hand, were different. The first thing she did, her first action, was treason. She hid the spies. There's no way around it. What she did was treason. That was her first action. Her next action was to, was to make a deal, to make an oath with her enemy, to have her enemy swear an oath of protection with her. And lastly, she left proof of her treason hanging out of her window for days. Again, these actions were treason, and if caught, would have cost her and likely her family's lives. To make it worse, she was known to be the last person to see the spies. The king's men showed up. Where are these men? They've left the city. The men went out looking for them. The men didn't find them. Who was the last person to see the spies? Rahab. It's not hard to imagine that Rahab would have been high on the list of the people the king suspected of harboring the spies. It's very reasonable. She was the last person to have seen them. She was on the king's radar. And to make it more challenging, she still had to leave a tangible, visible proof of her treason for, by my math, at least 11 days if not longer, hanging out of her window. 
case you're wondering where I get those 11 days, this is where that comes from. The men left and hid for three days. She tied the rope immediately when they left. We read that in scripture. Three days, rope's hanging out the window. They go and tell Joshua what's going on. Joshua crosses the Jordan with the Israelite people. I put one day in that, but realistically, to gather that many people to cross the river and set up and do all that, we're talking significantly longer. I think one theologian that I'd read at one point said that the start of the line at the Exodus to the end of the line of the Exodus, so when the Israelite people were leaving Egypt, the start of the line to the end of the line was approximately 24 hours long. I don't know where they got that number exactly. It's hard to say. How wide was the line? It's, it's speculative, of course, but that was how many people were leaving Egypt. So to get that many people across the river didn't take half an hour. It took some time to mobilize that many people and get them across the river. But for sake of my bad math, we'll give it one day. We've got to cross one day. That's four days. Then she left it out for the week, assuming that after the one day that they crossed the Jordan, the next day was the day that they started marching around the city until the last day where they marched around seven times. Either way, regardless of the length of time, for a minimum of 11 days, probably longer, Rahab had to leave visible, tangible proof of her treason hanging out her window. I don't know about you guys, but I like to think I'm fairly um, observant, at times anyways. My wife might disagree. It depends on what it is. If it's ketchup in the fridge, I have no idea where it is. But if it's a buck, you know, 300 yards out, then definitely I know where it is. But, you know, but I like to think that I would imagine I would see a bright scarlet rope hanging out of somebody's window on the wall. And it would take long to be like, why is there a rope that somebody could easily climb in and out of into our wall just hanging there? Why would they leave that there? I wonder, perhaps, this is the way that the spies are coming in and out of the city. Hmm, let's go find out who lives there. Oh, it's Rahab, the last person to see the spies. Okay, well, Rahab, let's go to the king. We're going to have a conversation. You're going to die, and we're going to get this matter tied up neatly. Right? Like, that's, that's the position she's left in with this rope hanging out of her window. But her actions were built on a firm foundation of no, foundational knowledge of who God is and what God is capable of. And then Rahab's actions led to blessing. Joshua chapter 6, you can flip there if you'd like. Verse 22 to 24, we read this. <clears throat> but the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as he swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all, all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And then they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver, silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury for the house of the Lord. So Rahab's understanding of who God was led her to action. Her actions provided this blessing. First blessing, all she wanted, all she asked for was that the lives of her family be spared. They were. The next blessing that we get, we actually don't read until Matthew and the genealogies, but we learn that Rahab married a man named Solomon. We don't know a lot about Solomon. There's a lot of actually speculation in and around who she married and when she married and how she married. It's, it's a fairly interesting side note, but um, it seems that Matthew, who would have had a firm understanding and account of the traditional views and beliefs of the Jewish people and their history, wrote that she married a man named Solomon. And so 
We are going to trust Matthew in that. And so we are going to say confidently that she married a man named Solomon, who may or may not have been. There's a few ideas floating around there. Some people believe he could have been one of the two spies. We're not sure. It's kind of neat to think about. We don't know. It's kind of fun. Also, people believe possibly that he was from a royal family, and Rahab in some commentaries is often referred to as a princess of Israel. Again, we don't know for certain. What we do know was that her son, Boaz, who would then become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, as we know later on, so Boaz and Naomi. Her son, Boaz, was wealthy, and so that gives some credit to the idea that Rahab married a man who was from some value, some worth, potentially some royal line. Though, of course, there was no official formal royal family until later in time. That would be King Saul, so there was no official king. But she married well. She did well. Her son did well. Another blessing. We know also that she was blessed to be King David's, again, great, 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 great grandmother, I believe. It's three or four greats. I'm not exactly sure. So family saved. She marries a man of worth. She is King David's great plus grandmother. We also know that she's one of only four women to be named in the genealogy of Jesus. So her understanding of God led to action. Her actions led to blessings way beyond what she had asked for. And so we just see God working in her life. We see God working in her story, God providing for this woman so much. Rahab grew up in a culture that opposed God, knew him, knew the history of his people and his power, and still opposed him. While the rest of the city turned their backs and hid in fear, hoping that their fortifications and their armaments would be enough, Rahab turned to God. Trusting he could save her, she rejected the hope placed in the city's high walls and trusted that the God who freed the Israelites from captivity and led them to Canaan would also save her. Like Rahab, on us now, we know we know that God has defeated a greater enemy even than Canaan. And has not only captured the promised land, but has defeated death. We know this. We also know that God is the one and only God, creator of everything, even the heavens and earth. And we know that God alone is able to save. More than that, we know that he has already done the work. Rahab had to sit and wait and trust and I'm sure at times either her or her family was frightened of being found out by this rope hanging out of their window, someone spotting that scarlet rope dangling out the window and saying, this is our treasonous person, let's go get her. Or perhaps when the walls began to fall, she was in the wall of the city and when the wall around her is crumbling, could you imagine being in a wall that is falling down all around you? You can hear it, you can feel it. And imagine you're sitting there thinking, this wall's coming down too. And I think for many of us, that would be a reasonable thought. All the walls around us are falling. This wall is falling down. Let's get out of here, lest the wall falls on us and we're trapped or we're killed and run for it. I'm sure that those fears arise more than once. And yet they remained. Choosing faith in God over fear. In contrast, we have the complete word of God. Couple that with 2,000 years of church history, not to mention the real work that God is doing in our personal lives. We know we have read and seen the faithfulness of God. 
our knowledge and understanding of who God is should be ten times that of Rahab's. But the question begs, what action has our knowledge and our understanding led to? Hopefully for some of you, you're like, it's led to so many good things. I've been blessed by God, and I've been able to bless so many others by God. I stand firm on, on God's word. I am confident in my salvation, and I am bold in my faith. But I think for many more of us, we live in more fear than Rahab did. Second Timothy, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. This is Paul writing to Timothy, fully understanding the stress, the worry, the fear that it, it can be sometimes being a Christian in a culture that doesn't stand for Christ. Right? Living in a Christian culture, believing in Christ is one thing, but living in a culture that is opposed to God and still standing firm in our faith is another challenge altogether. And this is Timothy's situation, and Paul understands that, and so Paul writes this to Timothy as an encouragement, and let it be an encouragement to us as well. Here is, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I'm, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of our, his own purpose and grace, which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the age began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Paul absolutely understood the worry that someone being bold in their faith would have. And instead of Paul writing to Timothy and saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you worried? Why do you have this fear? Grow up, man. We see this man come alongside his, his son, as he calls him, a, a young man that he mentors, and he gives us this strong encouraging, and he reminds him, if we have God, what do we have to worry about? In many ways, we live in Jericho, a culture hostile to God and his people, a culture that views some of our actions and beliefs as treason to society. And as a result, many Christians have retreated inward. Not saying necessarily that they've left the church, but certainly they've removed the rope of our convictions. They've become less bold in sharing their faith when challenging topics arise rather than sharing their opinion and why they believe what they believe, they, they step back. Instead of standing firm on the solid ground that is God, our foundation, we are concerned and worried that the walls are going to fall in on us and we take a step back. Rahab's desire was her life was for her life to be saved. 
That's what she wanted. That's what she hoped for. She was worried about dying in, in the battle. She was di- worried about dying when, when the Israelites came. Her desire was for her life to be saved. She could have asked for more. I'm not sure she would have received more, but she could have asked for more. And even though she didn't, our God, who is a good God, blessed her with so much more. And yet our reward is still so much greater. Our reward is greater than keeping our life. Our reward is Jesus Christ and eternity with him. If you're here this morning and you don't understand what that means or understand why that is great, if you don't understand the beauty and the power of life change in Christ Jesus, then we would love to talk with you. I know most Sundays there's people up here to pray with. We would love to have that conversation with you and explain to you why. If you're here and you're a Christian, let that be your foundation. Don't be worried about what's going to happen. Don't be worried if you're cast out. Don't be worried if people don't like you anymore because you stand firm in your convictions because Christ is our reward. The question is, what's your foundation? The Canaanites was their wall. Our current culture is social justice for, for all who fit into it anyways. Many people have different foundations that they rely on, that they hold on, that they think will save them. Perhaps it's money set aside in a bank account. Perhaps it's your good looks. Perhaps it's your athletic abilities. I'm not sure what your foundation is. But one way or another, every foundation that we put our hope in, apart from God, will fail. The only time-tested, dependable foundation for our lives is God. Rahab knew it. Her great-grandson David knew it. Paul knew it. Timothy knew it. Countless church leaders throughout all of church history knew it. Many of our parents or grandparents knew it. And so likewise, our challenge is to be a people that has built our life on the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ and all of his promises that he already has and will fulfill. And with that as our foundation, let us be confident and bold in our faith. Let me leave you with this from Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since you have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the example of Rahab and many others throughout scripture and church history who have consistently put their faith and their trust in you. God, we know that you are good. We know that you are dependable, Lord, and I pray that as we go from this place, we would be encouraged in our faith and that we would be bold, not ashamed, not afraid to tell those that we encounter of your great love and blessings for us. God, we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.